Be seated. Good morning. If you've got your Bible, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. So turn there. If I haven't met you, my name is Chase Jacobs. I'm the executive pastor here at Desert Springs, and you are joining us as we jump into uh, a series in the Gospel according to Matthew, and not just the Gospel according to Matthew, but for uh, the next several weeks, we'll be in what's called the Sermon on the Mount. So that is just Matthew chapters 5 through 7. This is one long block of teaching that Jesus gave us. In fact, it's probably some of the most well-known teaching uh, of Jesus in the Gospels, and some of the most beautiful, and some of the most Profound. So you are joining us in that study, and we are looking uh, this week at verses 13 through 16. So if you've got your Bible, we'll also have these words up on the screen, but we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. Let me read these to you. Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Go the extra mile, turn the other cheek, the blind leading the blind. These are all phrases, expressions that are very common in our culture. People use these expressions every day, and many of them have no idea that they're quoting Jesus when they say them. And our passage this morning contains two more examples of biblical phrases that have passed into the common vernacular that get used all of the time. So you don't even have to be a Christian or have grown up in the church and still have probably heard someone describe a humble, honest, hardworking person as being the salt of the earth. Have you heard this? And the phrase, city on a hill... In our own country, there is a long tradition of referring to America as a shining city on a hill. That was one of Ronald Reagan's favorite phrases. And all due respect to the Gipper, but that is not what Jesus meant when he spoke that over the church 1,700 years before America existed. And that's a trouble with these common biblical phrases that get picked up by the world around us is that often their original meaning will kind of drift from what Jesus intended when he first said it to us. And so that's really the work that we're going to be doing this morning is we're going to try and get back to the original meaning of these two beautiful word pictures that Jesus gives to the church of being salt and light. And we'll see, I hope, that... uh, Whatever maybe you think that those phrases mean, that what they truly mean is wonderful and maybe a little surprising, but very encouraging for us as a church. Now, as we turn to this passage, it's really important that we keep it in the larger context of the Sermon on the Mount, especially everything that has already come before it. So if you remember last week, we looked at what are called the Beatitudes, these uh, statements of blessing for these paradoxical kingdom Virtues, And if you remember when Pastor Ryan was going through the Beatitudes last week, so this is in verses 1 through 12 of chapter 5, Ryan said that there's really a progression 
in the Beatitudes, that it starts with poverty of spirit, of realizing that you bring nothing to God, that you only take from God, you only need from God. And then it moves to mourning our sin and to being meek before God, and all of this culminates in us being righteous, being righteous in such a way that other people see our righteousness. In verses 10 to 12, what we looked at last week, that we saw that Jesus said that there will be a negative response often to our righteousness, that other people will see our righteousness, they will see our good works, they will see the gospel reflected through us, and they will persecute us for it, that people will hate us on account of Jesus. So that is a negative response to our righteousness. Well, beginning in verse 13, Jesus is going to say there's also a positive response. So this is really just picking up on the same idea. And what we're looking at this morning is there is a positive response. And what is that? The Father in heaven receiving glory. So that's really what we're looking at this morning. For our outline, we'll just look at those two word pictures, salt and light, and then we'll consider, verse 16, how this leads to the Father receiving glory. So let's look at verse 13. This is our first point. This is the salt of the earth. So if you've got your Bible open, look down there at verse 13 with me. You, okay, stop right there. Who's the you? Who is he talking to? Yeah, this is the disciples that came to him in verse 1 that he is talking to. These are the you that Jesus started talking to in verse 11, who said, you are blessed when you are persecuted on my account. These are the you who have a reward stored up for them in heaven. So these are disciples. These are true disciples. These are followers of Jesus who have been regenerate, filled with the Holy Spirit. So this is not just every good and humble person out in the world. This is the church. It's you. And in the the Greek, this word you is plural. So it's all of you together. And it's emphatic. So we don't do this so much in English, but you could translate this, you and only you are the salt of the earth. You and only you are the salt of the earth. So what does that mean, salt of the earth? Well, it may surprise you, but scholars are actually not quite certain what that means. There are lots of different options. One commentator said that there are as many as 11 different uses of salt in the ancient world that Jesus could have been evoking when he tells the disciples, you are the salt of the earth. So there's 11 possible ways of interpreting what salt of the earth actually means. Some of these examples are that this is saying that the church is valuable. It's an everyday commodity. Or salt could represent purity because it's white. Salt could be a disinfectant. The book of Ezekiel talks about uh, rubbing salt on babies after they're born as a, as a way of disinfecting them. One of the more probable uses, and this might be one that we're a bit more familiar with in our modern context, is as a kind of flavoring or seasoning. Because after all, who doesn't love some food that is just the right kind of salty? Okay, think of french fries, some really good salty french fries. Have you ever had a french fry that somehow missed the salt shaker? And it's just a gross potato stick, right? I mean, who wants that? But it's the salt that makes it better. And so many interpreters have understood this as the main idea of what Jesus is saying, that the church is the world's flavor. Wherever we go, we should make that place better. We should be the agent by which our community or our workplace or our home improves. It is transformed. You could look at Colossians chapter 4, verse 6 in support of this interpretation. There the apostle Paul says, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. 
so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So is that it? Is that what Jesus means when he says that the church is the salt of the earth, that we, by our goodness and our joy and our acts of mercy and our love, that we go out into the places where we go into the world and we have a transforming effect on the people and the world around us? Is that what he means? Well, I think that that should certainly be true of Christians, that we should be joyful and we should be merciful and we should be loving and all of that, that we should go out and we should hope that wherever we go, we are having a positive impact on that place. We should hope that we are making that place better. We should even pray for that. So this is a good thing and it's a good meditation, but I'm afraid that sometimes we can over-realize that metaphor a little bit. What I mean by that is you will often hear Christians say things like, if we just got enough Christians in that place, if we just got enough Christians in this industry, if we just got enough Christians pulling the levers of power, then almost inevitably that place or that industry or that country would get better. But I don't think that that's the future that the New Testament paints for us as it envisions the rest of history. Not one where things go from bad to better to best. In fact, the vision of the New Testament is that things will go from bad to worse, and then Jesus comes back. So to interpret Jesus' words this way is the salt is that we will inevitably have a transforming impact on the world. Actually, I think it forgets the verses that came right before verse 13. That no matter how loving we are, no matter how good we are, no matter how joyful we are in the places that we go, not everybody's going to like it. That some people will see our love and our joy and our good works and they will hate us for it and persecute us for it. Some people just don't like salt on their potato sticks. But it's precisely because we are salty that we will be persecuted. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody in the world is going to respond that way, but we just shouldn't have a triumphalistic view of the mission of the church. And I think if we say that the salt is this flavoring that is inevitably going to make things better, then we will misunderstand what our purpose in the world is. And I think it's a little historically out of context. In the ancient world, the most common use of salt, contrary to how we use it today, the most common way that they would use it in the ancient world was as a preservative. It was a preservative. 2,000 years ago, they didn't have refrigerators. They didn't have Ziploc bags. They didn't have ways of keeping food from rotting and decaying, especially meat. And meat basically starts decaying as soon as you kill it. And so what they would do is they would cover it in salts. They would even soak it in a salty brine. And that would kill all of the bacteria on the meat that would try to make it rot and make it decay. And I think that is the best understanding of what Jesus is saying when he says, you church are the salt of the earth. You are a preservative. And so when Jesus says that about the earth, what is he saying? The earth is decaying. The earth is corrupted. It's not going to get better. Remember what the Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 2, the world is passing away along with its desires. 
So the world is broken. The world is fallen. The world is corrupted by sin. And this goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Now, that doesn't mean that the world is all bad. It doesn't mean that God doesn't like the world. God loves the world. God is going to renew the world. He's going to save the world. And he is renewing a remnant of believers out of the world. So God does want to fix the world But it's not going to happen as we go out and make things better and better. It's going to be when Jesus comes back at the end. And so the church right now in the world is a preserving, preservative influence on the world. That we interact with sin and corruption in the world. And that especially means sin and corruption in human hearts. And we keep that sin in check. We restrain it. And God uses the church to keep the church throughout this age, preserving a remnant of people that God is going to save. So I'm gonna talk more about how we actually do that in just a minute, but let's finish verse 13. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? And I know there are some of you engineer types in here who say that's actually not possible, chemically speaking, for salt to lose its taste, which is true, apparently. Salt is a stable compound. It does not break down into other things. And so Jesus isn't saying that somehow salt loses its properties of being salt. What Jesus is saying is that this salt is somehow tainted or diluted with stuff that is not salt, And so if the salt gets diluted with stuff that is not salt, it's not good for anything anymore. Look at the end of verse 13. It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. That's, of course, a warning to Christians. Don't let your discipleship be tainted with the world's corruption. Do not become like the world, because if you become like the world, then you are of no use to the world. This is why Jesus prayed for us in John 17, that we would be in the world, but not of the world. So we can't stay in the salt shaker, but we also cannot let the world ruin the preserving influence that we would have as we go out into it. So there are lots of examples that we could come up with for ways that disciples, the church, can be corrupted like the world. I think many of those are probably obvious to us, how we can become so like the world that we're of no use to the world. But one good analytical question for you here, if you are a disciple or you think that you are a disciple of Jesus, one, one question that you can ask so you, that you can heed Jesus' warning. Outside of you being here right now on a Sunday morning, if a non-believer were to look at the rest of your life, Monday through Saturday, especially the private parts of your life, would they see anything that would give them an indication that you're a Christian? Or does your life look no different from a non-believer? And I, listen, I don't mean the bad non-believers. There are lots of upstanding, virtuous, even conservative non-believers. Are you actually one of them? Because if you are, then you're not the salt of the earth. And there's a, there's a warning of judgment here that you would be thrown out and trampled. Or another question, does your life exhibit the kind of paradoxical kingdom virtues that we looked at in the Beatitudes? When you look at your life, can you say, I see those things by which someone is blessed? 
I see poverty of spirit. I mourn over my sin. I'm meek before God. I show mercy. I'm pure in my heart. I desire to make peace. Is that what you believe is the blessed life? Or do you actually believe that a blessed life is having wealth in this life? Having more power or influence? Or pursuing impure passions? It's those people of whom the Beatitudes are speaking, those ones who are blessed that are in the kingdom. And if there is no desire for any of those things, then friend, you might not be in the kingdom yet, but you can come in. But you need to check, you need to see, because those other things, that's not salt. That's not going to be of any use in the world, especially in the grand scheme of eternity. So that's verse 13. Hopefully we're starting to get a bit more of an accurate picture of what Jesus is talking about, the church, with this metaphor of salt. But, but the really good news is that Jesus didn't give us one metaphor. He gave us two. Because the salt one, we're not quite sure. It could be 11 different things. But the light one, we have a lot more certainty about. And these metaphors are in parallel. What that means is don't take these apart. Don't consider them without interacting with them together. They're in parallel. You can even hear it. Salt of the earth, light of the world. So salt and light are synonyms, and earth and world are synonyms. And so we can understand better what salt means when we understand more what light means. So let's look at verses 14 and 15. This is the light of the world. Verse 14, Jesus says, you, same you, you plural, you emphatic, are the light of the world. And what would that have meant for Jesus' original listeners? Well, they would have had many ideas going off in their head here because the Old Testament uses light as a metaphor over and over and over again. And it's a beautiful, very multi-leveled one. So if you were to read through the Old Testament, you would see that light usually represents the revelation of God or the truth of God. It represents the presence of God. And it represents purity and righteousness. And all of that is in contrast to darkness. Darkness in the Old Testament represents ignorance and it represents being away from God and it represents the presence of sin in our life. And so if we look at these in parallel, we can say that darkness is parallel to death and decay and corruption, that the world is dark and it needs light shining on it. But one more Old Testament connotation of light and this is very common in the prophets, is as a symbol for salvation. And especially salvation for the peoples, for the nations, for the world, and one that comes from Mount Zion, Jerusalem, Israel, the people of Israel, and then especially one that comes from the Messiah, Israel's long-awaited Messiah. So this is the metaphor that the prophet Isaiah picks up quite often. We've looked at a lot of Isaiah today already. We opened with Isaiah 60. It says, Behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. We looked at Isaiah 42. Andy read that for us. There it says that the Messiah will be a light for the nations, for the whole world. 
And actually, too, he says that he's going to give the Messiah as a covenant for the peoples. That's, that's one more possible use of salt, that the Jews would use salt to consecrate a covenant because it had a preserving symbol that this covenant endures, it preserves. And so Isaiah is saying that the Messiah will be a covenant and light. So I think that this is what is being evoked here by Jesus. Isaiah 49, you could go there, it says something very similar, that the Messiah, who's going to be a representative of Israel, is going to the nations with this light of salvation. Well, we're here in Matthew, and we know that Matthew loves the book of Isaiah. In the four chapters that we have covered so far, Matthew has quoted Isaiah three times directly. Three times in four chapters. That's a lot. And do you remember what the very last quotation of Isaiah was? In chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, Matthew describes Jesus' ministry in Galilee, Galilee of the Gentiles, as a fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 9. There Matthew says, the people dwelling where? In darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them the light has dawned. Do you see what Matthew's doing there? All of that stuff that Isaiah says about the light, that the nations need a light to shine on them, and it's going to be in the Messiah. Matthew is saying, hey, that's Jesus. Jesus is the light, and he goes to the nations. That's what the gospel is. That is the good news. It's a light of salvation and eternal life for all people, for anyone and everyone who would believe, whether you are a Jew, part of Israel, or whether you're a not Jew. Okay, this is the light of salvation for everyone. Why? Because what did we say? The whole world is corrupt and in darkness. Everyone, everyone is born in this world dead. They're born dead. Imprisoned in a dungeon of darkness unable to save ourselves, unable to do anything. Dead people don't raise themselves from the dead. And so, so we were in such desperate need and our heavenly father saw us in that condition and gave us his only son. That Jesus came from heaven, the very presence of God, the very revelation of God, the hope of God's righteousness, the light of the world, shining in our darkness. And Jesus defeated death. Jesus defeated the darkness on our behalf. He saved us from our sins. How did he save us? By dying in our place. Remember these words? There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. And then what? Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave, he rose again. When Jesus died on the cross, he died succumbing to all of the darkness in this world, all of the darkness of our sin on him. And when he came back from the dead, that was proof that death and darkness have been destroyed forever by Jesus Christ. And everyone who will believe in Jesus has the hope of eternal life for them. This is what Jesus says about himself. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, 
but have the light of life. This is how the gospel is the light of salvation. You can be saved from your sins by believing in Jesus. And when you believe in Jesus, then you become part of his church, which means that you become united with Christ himself. You are so closely connected with Jesus Christ that anything that we can say about Jesus is true of you because you are in the church. And so this is how Matthew in chapter four can say that Jesus is the light of the world and then Jesus in Matthew five can look at you and you alone church and say the very same thing. Isn't that mind blowing? You church are the light of the world, not in yourself. You were darkness, you were death, but Jesus has made you alive and he has filled you with his light so that everything that is true of light is true of you. The church is the pillar and buttress of the truth of God's revelation in the world. The church is the presence of God, the temple of God in the world. The church is a community of righteousness and holiness, zealous for good works, Paul says in the book of Titus, that reflects the holiness and righteousness, the moral purity of God. That's you. And in the same way that Isaiah means it, the church is the light of salvation to the nations. I think that's the biggest idea that Jesus has in mind when he says you are the light of the world. He means you are the means by which God is extending his new covenant promises out to the ends of the earth, this promise of salvation for the nations. That's you, church. This is how we make sense of verses 14 and 15. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. So this is the same as in verse 13. He gives the metaphor and then he kind of gives a warning. Here it's the same thing. You're the light. And then he gives this picture of absurdity. You cannot hide a city on a hill. That's what he means. It's impossible to hide a city on a hill. It's a city on a hill. What are you going to do? And it would be absurd to light a lamp and then hide it especially back then when when you used valuable oil to burn a lamp. The only reason that you were burning a lamp was because everybody in the house needs light, and so you wouldn't light it and then cover it up. Makes no sense. That's what Jesus is saying about you. You can't be hidden. It's absurd for you to be hidden. But that's what was happening. When Jesus says, city on a hill, it's likely a reference to Jerusalem. To Mount Zion. It's a reference to the purpose for which God redeemed and established Israel all the way back in the Old Covenant. That Israel was supposed to be this display of God's brightness, this display of God's righteousness, this display of God's salvation to the whole world. But they failed to do that. Israel, under the Old Covenant, they failed to do what God had purposed them to do. How? Because they, came di- they became diluted. They became like the world around them. They, instead of worshiping God rightly and walking in justice and righteousness, worshiped false gods and sinned over and over and over again. So they failed in the purpose that God had given them. 
And that's why Isaiah says we need a Messiah coming out of Israel to to renew and redeem Israel so that Israel can finally fulfill its purposes in the world. But it's going to take more than just them trying to fulfill that old covenant. It's going to take a brand new covenant. One that's not based on the observance of outward conformity to good works, but one that changes your very heart on the inside. And that's what Jesus has done for the church. Everyone in the Messiah is now what God's people were always supposed to be. That we are the city on a hill, and we can do it now because it's not something outside of us, but it's something on the very inside as we are filled by the Holy Spirit. We are now the city on a hill. But the way that in the old covenant, it was more of a come and see model that Israel was supposed to just live their lives in this little spot of land and all the nations would somehow kind of see them and then want to be drawn in. Well, we have moved in the new covenant from a come and see model to a go and tell model that we are now a moving city, the church. And that's this last point, verse 16, the glory of the Father. So verse 16, Jesus says, in the same way, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So this is the most important verse in these passages that we've been looking at because they're the interpretive key for everything else that came before us. So you can't say that the salt is something or the light is something that doesn't make sense with what verse 16 is saying. Verse 16 tells us what it is that we are supposed to do. We are supposed to shine our light. But then he tells us how we do that. How? By good works. And then he tells us the purpose. What's the purpose? That we would give glory to our Father who is in heaven. So remember, this is the positive response that some people in this world will have when we fulfill the purpose of righteousness that God has for us. They will glorify God. And then we have to ask, what does that actually mean? What does it mean to give glory to God? I think sometimes we think that that it's just this sort of vague sense that God kind of looks better as we go out into the world. Is that what we mean by our mission statement when we say we, we exist to spread God's glory broader and deeper? That just people vaguely will have a better impression of God than they had the last time? Of course not. What do we mean? They are going to become true worshipers of God. And how does somebody become a true worshiper of God? They hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and they believe. They repent and are saved. That's the light of the gospel. So I think we can really see verse 16 here is foreshadowing the Great Commission text that we're going to get at the end of the book of Matthew. We know that this is where Matthew is going to be driving. At the very end, Matthew 28, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, disciples, go therefore and make more disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. So church, this is how we are the preserving salts of the earth. We go to the earth. We go to the ends of the earth and we proclaim to dead people how they can be made alive again. And remember, Some are going to hear that, and they're going to be offended that you said that they were dead in the first place. But some people are going to to hear that, and they are going to be brought from death to life, just like you have been. And in that way, God is preserving a people, a new covenant people, for how long? Through the end of the age. All the way until the end. 
And that's how we're light. This is how we're the light of the world. We go out to the world as this community of truth and righteousness in the presence of God, and we announce the good news of salvation to people who are in darkness. And the Bible says that they would be transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. So this is what we do. We go out and make disciples. That's how we are salt and light. That's what Jesus is primarily talking about here. And you say, wait a minute. 5.16 says good works. Why do you keep talking about evangelism, Chase? Why do you keep on talking about making disciples? It says good works. That is a false dichotomy. Why in the world would you think that making disciples is not a good work? Why would you say there's good work and then there's evangelism? Evangelism is the greatest work that we can do. To go and announce to dead people how they can be brought back to life. To go and announce to people who are trapped in sin and darkness and suffering and struggling and sad and guilty. And you can say, there is salvation for you. There is light for you. You want something better than that? That is the greatest work that we can do. That we can do. Because remember who this is written to. Who is this addressed to? You and you alone, church. You and you alone. So that means the good works that Jesus is sending us out to do are good works that only the church can do. Our local secular homeless shelter is wonderful, but they are not the salt of the earth. United Way is not the light of the world. There are lots of good things that we can do, but what is the one thing that only the church can do in the world? We can proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that is the good work that Jesus sends us out to do, making disciples. But does that mean that all of our other good works that, that we could do don't matter? Of course not. Does that mean that, that the righteous living that Jesus has in view with this, that we don't even need to worry about that? All we need to worry about is getting people saved. We don't need to, what good is it if somebody's stomach is filled, but they're going to hell? Is that what Jesus, no. What Jesus is saying is that our purpose in the world, our salt and light purpose is to make disciples. And the righteousness, the presence of God, the light that we display is what validates that message of good works. That message of the gospel, our good works validate that message. So all I'm saying is with this salt and light stuff, I, we can't downplay the importance of making disciples in what Jesus is saying here. We definitely can't fall into the error that I don't know when this happened, but that they started attributing to Francis of Assisi, where he said, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. Have you heard this? And all he says, Francis of Assisi, he never said that. I don't know why people think that he said that. You know why he never said that? Because it's heretical. We do preach the gospel at all times. And words are always necessary. Faith comes by hearing and that by the word of Christ. But then we live in such a way that proves that we have a consistent message. We can't live or we can't proclaim this message that says we are living for the next world when we look exactly like this world. Nobody's going to believe us when we say that. And yet at the same time, don't fall into the error that just says that if you do enough good works without ever opening your mouth and telling people about how they can actually be saved, that you are fulfilling the purpose of the church and the world. It reminds me of a story I heard about a man who became a Christian in the middle of his life. And it, and it radically transformed his whole life. I mean, he became a true, genuine believer. And so he made a commitment that he was going to be salty 
in his workplace. And so month after month after month, he made this, this concerted effort to be more kind and more loving and, and to, to not lose his temper when he usually would have and to you know, pick up people's extra shifts to be very sacrificial so that he would help out his coworkers. He was making every effort to do good works in his workplace. And after a long time of this happening, one of his coworkers comes up to him and, and he says, friend, I, can I ask you a question? We've worked next to each other for years and, and I noticed something happened to you. You're, you're different. You're acting different. You have more joy. You're, you're nicer. I, I just have to ask, did you become a vegetarian? <laughs> oh, that, that transformation in his life would have been announced with him saying, I am a believer. I am a follower of Jesus Christ. Now watch me. Now watch me month after month after month as I, as I hold out to you this gospel of salvation and I do these other good works that come along with it. Then our Father would have received glory. So we can't, we can't separate these things from each other. We can't say that these good works and evangelism are two different things. It all goes together and the primary purpose is to announce the way that people can be saved. And then yes, it does come along with these works that, that give glory to who? Does it say give glory to God? Does it say give glory to the, the deity like Ryan was praying about? No, it says give glory to our Father. This is the first of 17 times Matthew will call God, or Jesus will call God our Father in the Sermon on the Mount here in Matthew. 17 times in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls God our Father. And what's the implication of that? You fathers, happy Father's Day. Don't your kids look like you? You ever see them do things or say things? It's like, man, that's exactly how I would have done that. Or do you ever catch yourself doing something that, that reminds you of your dad? Like, oh man, I turned it into him, aren't I? He's our Father in heaven. That's the relationship that we have and so that we should go out looking like our Father. We should be righteous. We should have this, this purity and this truth and these things. And actually, Jesus is really just gonna spend the rest of the Sermon on the Mount explaining what it means for us to do good works, to do this righteousness that gives glory to our Father in heaven. So just keep on coming back. We're gonna learn about this righteousness that he holds out to us that looks like our Father in heaven, this righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. This righteousness that's not about our extward, outward deeds, but what's really going on in our hearts. This righteousness that at the end of chapter five, he says that we'll be perfect like our heavenly father is perfect. Okay, so he's gonna tell us what that means. We'll, we'll think more about these good works, but I just don't want us to, to miss the evangelistic focus of the whole book of Matthew and what Jesus is saying here. And I want this to be an encouragement to us. If you're new or visiting with our church, we've had um, a year-long challenge for our church that every member of Desert Springs Church would share the gospel with at least two people. Not convert them. You have no way of bringing dead people to life. That's not your job. God is the one who gives life, but he gives life through you proclaiming the gospel to them. So we call this two in 22. And here we are about halfway through the year. How's it going? Maybe this is something that you can talk about in your community groups if you meet today, or this is something that you can talk about at your dinner table. How is your two and 22 going? Because I hope you see, we didn't just do this because we thought it's you know, some gimmick that's gonna get more people to come into our door. This is us challenging you, church, to be what Jesus made you to be, salt and light, to go and share the gospel. And so maybe this is just your encouragement 
That person that you wrote down in your bookmark that you've been praying for, maybe today's the day you just text them. Just text them and say, hey, can we get coffee and I can tell you about the best news you'll ever hear. And just do it. Just go, just, just take that step. Take that next step. Or maybe we're, one, we're, we're six months into this campaign and you just say, I need help. I, I am struggling here. I'm intimidated. I thought it was gonna, but I haven't, it hasn't happened yet. Well, then let us help you. Come, come talk to us and, and we'll, we'll give you some more coaching. We'll give you some advice, but we wanna help you do this because this is how you are salt and light in the world. And maybe for, for some of you, it's, it's that you need to remember the global scope of what Jesus is saying for us here. That we are not the light of Albuquerque. We're not the salt of New Mexico. It's for the whole world. It's for the ends of the earth. That, that Jesus wasn't being hyperbolic when he says, go to all the nations. We, we should go to all the nations. And so maybe somebody in here right now, you hear this, you hear this, that God has called you to be salt and light. And maybe what you need to pray about is, is God leading me to be a missionary? Is God leading me to actually go out of America to tell people who sit in darkness and who have never heard the name of Jesus, to tell them about Jesus? Is that what God is calling you to do? If he is, or if you think that he might be, we want to help you do that too. We set aside like a fifth of our budget just to send people all over the world to tell people about Jesus. Hey, we want to help you. We want to equip you. If, if that is what God is calling you to do, we want to get you there. So come talk to us. If you think maybe, I don't know, I, I would like to pray about this or learn about this more, come talk to us. We need to be sending out people all over the world because Jesus is the light of the world and he's made us his light. And for all of us, I just want to point out one more thing in what Jesus is saying here. I want us to look really closely at what he says. He says, church, you and you alone are the salt of the earth. You and you alone are the light of the world. Those aren't commands. He's not saying, be salty. He's not saying, be lit, fam. He is saying, this is who you are. This is intrinsic to your nature. If you are a true, born-again Christian, you already are the light, and that should be an encouragement. Don't, don't dilute it, don't hide it, but if you're here and you said, I am so uh, intimidated by the thought of sharing my faith with somebody else, or I am so intimidated by the thought of going to another country to tell somebody about Jesus, let me tell you, you already have it in you. Be encouraged. You are already an evangelist. Jesus has already made you the light of the world. So just go be what you already are. And as you step out in faith and do that, you will find that it was there all along. So heed Jesus' warning and obey this command. Let your light shine before others. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the glory of the gospel that has shined in each of our lives. Those of us who have believed in you, we thank you for saving us from darkness and, and for working new life in our mortal bodies. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone in here in the, this room this morning who has not yet believed in Jesus, that you would save them, that you would shine that light in their heart and that they would believe and be forgiven and they would join us as part of this church that is your means of proclaiming the gospel to the ends of the earth. And God, I pray that you would help us all to be more faithful to share the gospel with our neighbors. Give us those opportunities and help us to walk in them. And God, I do pray that you would send out more people from our church to the ends of the earth 
that you would send them to the nations and that as you bring them in, they would be glorified, that you would be glorified. God, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.